Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have another incredible episode for you guys. So hopefully you enjoy. As always, we do enjoy our great content on Highly Respected. So I've got a couple different topics to discuss today, but the first we're going to discuss is the immigration issue. Of course, we always bring this up, but it's becoming back into the mainstream forefront or what the mainstream news is talking about. Due to the expanding numbers at the border, even though Biden, all throughout the summer, the Biden administration Democrats are like, woo, we've solved the border. No one's coming. Um, it looks like we're about to have another record month for August. Our August numbers are going to be well past 200,000 uh, once again, which throughout this year, the Biden administration has been championing the fact that there were not over 200,000 migrants uh, encountered or apprehended at the border. And now, despite all their various efforts to uh, stem the tide at the border, which usually meant granting would-be illegals a legal path to America, we're still going to have over 200,000 migrants. Actually, it's reported that it'll exceed 235,000, which would be, I think, the second highest after December 2022, when it exceeded 250,000. So great numbers on that. And also the fact that all these blue cities that are all sanctuary cities are suffering immensely from all these migrants coming there because they hear it's a sanctuary city and they've got great government benefits for them. So they all park out out there. And all these cities from New York City, Chicago, DC, LA, San Francisco, very and a few others are having major troubles with this, especially with New York City. So we're going to discuss how the immigration issue is impacting America. It's also, there's an impact in Europe where, you know, they're having a huge upsurge of boat migrants from Africa come ashore. You know, there was riots in uh, Lampedusa, and it's creating big political turmoil in Europe as well. So we'll probably combine most of the issues we'll talk a little bit about both because they both have political ramifications in upcoming elections and what they mean for both america and europe now we really have to the major point about america is that we are having this major upsurge we're still having a huge immigrant problem and it's also the 235,000 number doesn't fully account for how many immigrants are coming here because through parole program which is offering at least 30,000 migrants per month, a legal path here, and it's targeted to people who are coming from countries that are producing a lot of illegal immigrants, Cuba, Venezuela, Haiti, Nicaragua, and actually, I think I went through all four. <laughs> Cuba, Venezuela, Haiti, and Nicaragua, and they're producing many of the migrants. Then they offered uh, a more limited parole program, I think it's roughly 10,000 migrants per month. And it's probably, I think it might be a little bit less for other Latin American countries. And so that that's bringing about 40,000 migrants. And then there's the, um, you know, you could maybe say 40,000 migrants. And then there's the CBP-1 program, CBP-1 program, which is saying to these migrants that come to another country or they go to Mexico and then they apply through the app, they're like, oh, I'm applying for asylum. And then it welcomes them in, which they are not counted as a border counter. Instead, they're just counted as a part of the program. So they're allowed into the country. They're given a court date or they're given a timeline for when their asylum um, application will be processed and whether it will be approved and they're welcome in. 
And I remember the summer, it's about they're taking in about 1,500 migrants per day through this program. So that's like uh, 45,000 migrants that are coming in through that at least. So you have about, you know, at least 85,000 migrants would be would be illegals that would be counting for the border numbers. And they're also doing other things that they've been directing a lot of these migrants who may have otherwise come to the border. They're telling them to go to the port of entries and then they're counted in under a different rubric. They're not counted under illegal encounters. They've been pushing a lot of them to those areas. So, you know, we'll say at least 75,000 to 85,000 migrants that would otherwise be counted as border encounters are not because we're letting them in legally. So that 235,000 number, it's really over 300,000 that we're otherwise having. You just have now that 80, 85,000 that are coming in legally. And, but there are still illegals that's still contributing to our demographic change. It's still, uh, you know, huge population transfer that's happening and that's happening every month. So that's something that has to be uh, considered. And throughout this year, as I was mentioned earlier, is that the Biden administration was touting these efforts as really stopping the tide. You know, earlier this year, it looked like because after December, you know, there was this it looked like at the end of December, there was going to be an end to Title 42. Title 42 is the program that we Trump implemented during COVID, saying that, you know, any migrant that's caught will be deported immediately or expedited deportation. And that was acting as acted as a deterrent towards illegal migrants. And Biden has been trying to remove it for ever since he entered office, but they knew that it would have uh, created even more chaos at the border. So they've been you know, uh, delaying the removal of it or the elimination of it until early May this year when they finally did it. And in the lead up to the elimination, there was a huge upsurge of the border. But then afterwards, there was um, the border seemed to have calmed down and the Biden administration touted their own efforts like, woo, we finally convinced the illegals not to come here because we're offering them legal pathways to come here because there is no enforcement mechanism for a lot of these things. You know, they still have, even without Title 42, there's some of a bit of, you know, there's a carrot and a stick aspect. And they still have some sort of stick aspect Will they'll say, oh, if you come here under certain conditions, you know, we'll deport you. But there are so many exemptions. Like one thing is like asylum is that you're supposed to apply for asylum outside of the U.S. You're not supposed to apply for it like at the border. But there's so many exemptions granted. It's like, oh, if you have a real threat to you or whatever you can still apply at the border and you know you're supposed to but you're supposed to still apply for through cp cpp1 app or another mechanism for doing that outside the country uh, but still there it's not really working and the sick aspect doesn't isn't really working it's just the fact that they're offering legal pathways to so many illegals that they would have otherwise come here uh, at the border, they're now just flying in or, you know, coming in through legal, <laughs> through legal means. And that's it. So that's the only thing that they've offered. And throughout the summer, it seemed to calm down because they were touting about how, oh, there was no this. There's no mass upsurge after Tata 42 ended. We've got this covered. And the border was relatively quiet in, uh, in later May and, and June. And then the numbers started to build up again in July. And of course, they've um, 
really built up over August and now in September. I mean, we're going to have two straight, we're going to have at least two straight months of over 200,000 migrants uh, being picked up at the border, which was the same last year, you know, and last year when it was September, well, in December, I think it was seven straight months of 200,000 migrants coming to the border, at least being picked up at the border, at least per month. And we're going to see that later this year. I mean, it's, I mean, there's nothing stopping them. And a big reason that the there were numbers slowed down after Title 42 ended was that the cartels were saying were wanting to do a wait and see approach. And even liberals were admitting this is like saying like, well, they're holding back a lot of their human cargo or to try to figure out new routes of how the system is going to work now that they figured out the system. And, you know, it's even worse than ever. It's worse as a, a you know, at any time in American history. And we're also seeing the effects because these guys that they're apprehended at the border, they're immediately released. They're given a, and, you know, sometimes they're given free bus tickets, free, free travel fare, and they're sent to wherever they want to be. And, you know, they're not deported. <laughs> they're not sent anywhere. The whole idea now is not to even deport them or to uh, get them out of the country is to keep them in Texas. Is that Biden is proposing remain in Texas because the issue for these sanctuary cities, uh, these liberal sanctuary cities, is getting so bad. Because New York, the fact that Eric Adams is saying illegal immigration is going to destroy the city is a huge, huge thing. I mean, this is a very liberal mayor, very liberal city, and he's responding to constituent outrage. Of course, he got um, criticism from the left and from the mainstream media over that, but he's reflecting what a lot of New Yorkers are thinking. Uh, but there is no you know, thinking in his head that we're going to change our sanctuary city uh, policies or that we should actively deport illegal immigration or that we should really strengthen the border. They just want these people taken elsewhere or they want them to have some legal status to where they can work and they don't have to provide for them. And even though the resources are, you know, really, uh, <laughs> really getting threatened by this, I mean, they're having to cut police funding or transfer police funding to take care of the migrants, you know, they still don't want to actually implement strong immigration policies. They just want someone else to bear the burden of it rather than these sanctuary cities. And what better place to do that than Texas, which Texas is, you know, in a feud with Biden. You know, they're trying, Texas is trying to do various things to stem the tide of the border. You know, they put up a buoy barrier in the Rio Grande, uh, you know, there's been talk about using National Guard and state law enforcement at the border to patrol it and to act like, uh, you know, border patrol and possibly even deport and detain these illegals. So, you know, Biden says like, well, you know, they they don't vote for me. They don't vote for Democrats. So we'll let them we'll let them you know, we're going to keep all these illegals in Texas. How that's going to work, it's um Reigns to be seen. Apparently, there is a precedent for it because Ronald Reagan kept a lot of these illegals in Texas in the 80s over, you know, there was an upsurge in alleged asylum seekers at, at that time. Obviously, nowhere near the amount that we're having today. Um, but I don't and I don't even know how Texas, but it's all about ensuring that red states pay the price rather than their own cities and their own states. And that's the whole that's their whole solution. So the solutions from the Biden administration towards immigration are find more legal pathways for illegals and ensure that those illegals don't come to blue cities and that they stay in red areas. And 
I don't know how. I have a feeling Remain in Texas won't work. Um, <laughs> one, they're already in the country unless they're kept in like prison camps, which they're not going to do because that would be a major PR uh, disaster for the Biden administration. I don't know what they plan to do with it. And the migrants could just like hop out of town. It's not like Texas authorities want to keep them there because then they have to pay for them. And the one thing is uh, to go on the busings is because Texas has been sending these migrants all throughout the country. Uh, Arizona was doing it when they still had a Republican governor. Uh, DeSantis in Florida said he's going to do that, but outside of one plane flight to Martha's Vineyard and another plane flight to California, uh, you know, I think both plane flights combined was just 100 migrants. You know, he's not really... He hasn't been flying out any of his migrants because most of them are Cubans and Cubans are connected with his political constituencies. So he's, of course, not wanting to deport Cubans from the state because uh, that's most of the illegals that are, well, are most of the migrants that are arriving in Texas uh, coming from. So it's, it's pro- or arriving in Florida, rather. So it's mostly Texas that is seen as doing this now. Because uh, Arizona no longer has a Republican governor and, you know, uh, Katie Hobbs doesn't really want to do it to the same extent that Doug Ducey was. There's still a few buses that are coming from Arizona, but nowhere near to the extent uh, of what Texas is doing or Doug Ducey was doing prior to his departure from office. But that is, you know, the busings have worked because one, it's about helping out your own constituents is that these like small, it's usually a lot of these immigrants end up in rural towns that are strong Republican areas and they don't have the resources to take care of them and they don't want them. And so Texas is like, okay, well, we'll send them to places that claim that they want them. You know, it's it. And it's making sure that immigration stays front and center in the news. You know, if these immigrants were just staying in rural Texas or small towns throughout the country that are Trump-supporting areas, media wouldn't pay attention to it. The fact that they're in New York City, D.C., Chicago, the big California cities, ensures that this stays front and center in the media and it stays a topic for national political discourse. And it's terrible for Democrats for that because they don't want to have immigration be an important issue because they know they lose badly on it. Republicans aren't fully exploiting it yet, of course, but immigration is an issue that helps Republicans and will help them in the 2024 election. But the bigger problem with it are rather than the political considerations or electoral considerations is that America really just can't sustain this. You know, there's been a lot of liberal policies, insane liberal policies that, you know, we can sustain to uh, some extent. You know, the Ukraine war for America itself. So far, we haven't really suffered from it. Slightly higher gas prices, a few other things, but no real big uh, hindrance to us. Europe, different scenario. It's definitely paying a heavy price over the Ukraine war, but America, not so much. Uh, some of the crazy woke shit that we see all the time, you know, the left feels that it can sustain because as long as the people shrug their shoulders and, you know, they move along. But with immigration, it comes with a price tag. And these cities can't afford the massive amount of migrants that are coming to the U.S. And, you know, if this has become spread out, because you know, we've had well over 5 million illegal immigrants into the country. It's probably, you know, I'm, I'm basing this on thinking this from 2022, but it's probably probably 7 million now. By And there's, you, first off, you got to think about these border encounter numbers. They only count the ones that they actually apprehended. There's several that have gotten away, and usually that's um, 
for the past few years, it's always been around half a million. And this year it might be even a million, depending on uh, what the numbers look like. But there's a ton of illegal immigrants that have just entered this country under Biden alone. And then if you consider all the migrants that would have otherwise been illegals that he's bringing in legally, <laughs> it's just, uh, it's um, it's outrageous what you're seeing. Especially even you had the refugees that they were bringing over from Afghanistan and elsewhere. You know, there's a lot of people they're bringing in. And, but this is just simply unsustainable. So it, you have to wonder, is like, what happens next? Like, what do Democrats respond to this? If their efforts to place a burden on red states fail, which likely it will, where do they do next? Will they actually embrace some type of immigration restriction? And the answer is no. Like Biden had has had several opportunities to do something about the border, like anything to ensure that they don't have more over 200,000 migrants coming in per month. And despite all his efforts, which have usually just been letting in the, giving them, offering them more legal pathways here, None of them have worked. None of them have worked. And offering more legal pathways here to would-be illegals still creates those economic problems and those burdens that they're going to be causing because most of them are coming here and then they're immediately uh, siphoning off welfare. So what, it, so what will actually convince Democrats to do something about the border? And my answer is probably nothing. <laughs> I don't think I don't think that they're ever going to do something. I mean, there is a chance that Eric Adams, you know, that this problem gets so bad that Eric Adams is just like, we need a wall and we need to toughen up the border because they're just not going to help us out. I give it to the end of the year. Maybe that could happen. Uh, Brandon Johnson in Chicago would never do that. I mean, Brandon Johnson, who's far leftist guy, is the new mayor of Chicago. He's going to be welcoming in as many as possible. And no one in California is going to do that. But even, you know, Karen Bass, who's a far left black Democrat, um, who all these actually are black Democrats. But Eric Adams is kind of a little bit all over the place. It's a little, uh, you really can't call him far left. But Karen Bass and Brandon Johnson, you can and she's even complaining about legal immigrants now. So, you know, what's it's not really sustainable what's going what's happening. So, you have to ask so you have to wonder what is going to happen. Are they just going to let this happen for till maybe Biden is unseated in 2024? And the most likely answer is yes. <laughs> and I, I don't know what they'll do. I mean, they've been trying to send some of these migrants to Canada, which is which is really funny. But Canada, which is, you know, they never say no to immigrants. They feel that they're taking in too many at this moment. And they're like, oh, we can't take in all of them. Uh, so that doesn't really work. And that only, you know, there's so many of them that like Canada can only take in so many. Uh, that's not going to work as a scenario. So you really just wonder how this is fully going to play out. And I do think that the immigration issue, it's going to get so bad that it's just going to be one of those things gets, no matter what's happening with Trump um, and his legal problems, that this is going to be one of those things that's going to help Republicans do well in 2024. Even if, say, you know, there's like a conviction of Trump and other things, I think down ballot, uh, even maybe with the presidential election, that this, you know, that may be offset by the just horrible problems that Democrats are creating with immigration, that they're just, and that the fact that they have zero solution to this and they're not going to do anything about the issue because they're far left 
element of the party thinks we need to be welcoming in them more and the only problem is is that we're not immediately handing out work permits to them or legalizing them you know that's just not going to be an issue that they're going to resolve and even there's people in new york are complaining about eric adams like eric adams isn't really doing anything he's just rhetoric but they're complaining about his racist rhetoric now and it's like <laughs> the city's obviously suffering from this they can't they can't sustain this problem anymore so you're you're it really is one of those issues that you wonder what's how this is going to fully play out throughout the year because it's you know for 2021 and 2022 outside the border towns and some areas you know it's an issue that people were able to ignore even though it was getting media attention and stuff it was not something that felt that certain cities are going to be fall, fall or topple or go bankrupt over this one issue. But now it's having that direct effect. You know, it's something that they can't ignore. And if you're just bringing in like 200,000 migrants per month, like this is just, <laughs> it gets worse. It doesn't get better. Like the problem that you have that you're already having trouble maintaining is now just going to, you know, be overflowing with shit. So I don't know what they're going to, um, do with this. It's not. It's just not an issue that you can ignore anymore. And it's the same in Europe. Europe, they're just taking in so many of these migrants that they're just overwhelming resources. They're, ta- you know, they're taking up all the like these islands, like Lampedusa, and their g- general destination points. That's becoming a major issue. And in Europe, it's becoming a major hot topic because they, you know, every the solution for all these countries is that we hand them off to another European country. And Italy has been trying to hand these migrants off to Germany. They're even suggesting ideas. There was a politician, I think it was actually from France, not an Italian politician, but a French person was suggesting that Italy should bus these migrants to Germany. But Germany is also not wanting to take um, fulfill its bargain while saying that it'll take some of these migrants, illegal migrants from Italy. Um, you know, they're now not wanting the migrants, even though they have a very pro-immigration left-wing coalition now, a governing coalition. Even they know that they don't want to deal with this issue. And these countries are limited in what they can do to keep out the migrants. You know, they've tried to do, Italy's been trying to do a blockade. It really hasn't worked so far. I mean, Maloney, a lot of her immigration um, grandstanding has turned out to be bogus and just nothing. And she's advocating for more guest workers while doing nothing to really stop the illegal, illegal immigration tide. And also they're limited in how they can deport these migrants because of the European courts saying that it's uh, against human rights to do that. And even the European Court of Human Rights, uh, I'm not, maybe not use the official term, but the European courts are even limiting the UK from deporting migrants to Rwanda. I think it was Rwanda. Um, which a European court said they couldn't do. Even though the UK left the EU, they're still legal traps into doing this. And then the you know UK is having problems with illegal migrants coming over from the, across the channel, and they're trying to send them back, and France doesn't want them. And so it's just a big clusterfuck. But it's actually helping the right-wing parties because, you know, in, a, in several states in Germany, you know, the AFD is now reaching 30%. And that's a huge, huge deal because... The far right has never gotten, I think, 
there was a party that had connections with a certain band political party from the 30s and 40s in the 50s. I think it was like the Socialist Right Party, if I'm not mistaken. They got like 15 percent in election and then they got banned. And that was like the highest total. And it's looking like the AFD nationwide is going to get at least 20 percent. And in certain states, they're the biggest party. Like this is a major deal that the like a far right nationalist party or right wing nationalist party is so successful in Germany. And it's driven by immigration and over the idiotic policies that Europe is pursuing uh, uh, over the Ukraine war in Russia. And just energy policies in general, stupid energy policies. So this is like an issue that no longer can be ignored. It's not something, it's going to be a dominant issue in 2024, both in Europe and in America. And it's going to help the right, but it really needs to help the right enough so they fully gain power so they can stop this problem. Because the left is never going to stop this problem. They are always going to support it. And their only solution is to offer more legal pathways to these migrants or push the burden onto right-wing states or right-wing localities. And that's even the same in Europe as it is in America. So that's a topic we're going to be fully uh, keeping an eye on for a long, long time, obviously, because it's a core issue of our side. But moving on to another topic that's uh, a little less serious, but more entertaining. It is the topic of conservative girls gone wild. Uh, using girls here may be a uh, misnomer because all the women we're going to be talking about are definitely very mature older women. One is even a grandmother, and she is 36 years old. And of course, I'm going to be talking about Lauren Boebert. But it's not just Lauren Boebert's uh, antics that we're going to be discussing. There's also Christy Nome. There's also Nancy Mace and Marjorie Taylor Greene and a few others that are going to be uh, talked about in this in this in this segment and it's really just that there is uh, the bigger theme is that there's all these women that are now becoming leaders in the republican party and a lot of them are maybe a bit sex crazed <laughs> or maybe uh, not living up to the uh, traditionalist uh, you know trad wife archetype that a lot of the right wants to um, uphold and to believe that all these women are about. And they're uh, not acting as very good Christian women, so to speak. And this is mostly found in Lauren Boebert. There were two big news stories. There was like one is pretty much confirmed that Christy Nome was having an affair with Corey Lewandowski. Corey Lewandowski is a Trump advisor who was his campaign manager back in 2016 and has always been a Trump world figure. And there's some suggestions that that's some of that close connection is a uh, reason why Chrissy Nome has uh, endorsed Trump. Uh, that aside, it was confirmed that they're likely having an affair despite both being married and Nome uh, wanting to present herself as this good Christian woman and strong social conservative values. She's having an affair, uh, a not very well hidden affair with Corey Lewandowski. But this is not a new rumor. I think it may even have been two years ago. Like, this is how time flies by. It was either early 2022 or sometime in 2021 where there were rumors that uh, Lewandowski and Noam were having an affair. There was a, some news reports over, but it wasn't well confirmed and it didn't become a big story. And I argued at the time is that no one's going to give a shit because... First off, affairs and moral impropriety, even among male congressmen, no one cares about. Like, look at the stuff around Gates, like Matt Gates. Uh, 
Like, even though Matt Gates was falsely accused of, like, the sex trafficking and stuff, there's a very, you know, there's been a lot of news allegations that he's had um, uh, a lot of extracurricular activity. We'll just say that. But it, like, doesn't care. Like, even if he's, even if he or someone else is accused of having an affair, it would, people wouldn't give a shit. Like, it's, it's just not an issue anymore unless they're misusing state funds for it or if it's considered uh, sexual harassment of that. You know, there were a lot of congressmen that are forced out in uh, our two. There's John Conyers and Al Franken at when Me Too first peaked in early t- or late 2017. And both of them were accused of sexual misconduct. With Al Franken, it was even r- more ridiculous. Even though he's a hardcore liberal and it was no law- real loss that he left, it was just that he played a prank on some other woman he was doing comedy shows with. And she was like, this is sexually inappropriate. And, of course, the Democrats forced him out. Um, Conyers had a, it was a little bit more <laughs> uh, more detailed uh, sexual misconduct. But even that. But even unless it comes to that, like having a congressman who's openly having affairs in that big of a deal. You can see this big change is that Kevin McCarthy in 2015 was supposed to be the next House Speaker. But there were these uh, very credible accusations that he was having an affair with another congresswoman. And he, you know, he didn't really want that to come out. So people were threatening him over it and news outlets were hinting at it. And he decided to allow Paul Ryan to become Speaker of the House. It's likely that he's continued to do these same actions since then. But that didn't even come up. Like, even though there's strong opposition to Kevin McCarthy from these conservatives, they didn't bother bringing up like, hey, you're having an affair on your wife. They just focused on, like, we don't think you're a strong enough conservative, um, showing that this is no longer has the potency even over over a few years. A lot of this is the Trump effect, because, I mean, Trump obviously was having affairs on, on Malaya and all of his wives, and just p- voters don't care. But they especially don't care about female affairs, because female affairs... In our society, they are treated as, you go, girl. It's like, there's something wrong with your husband. That's why you're doing this. And there has been news articles for years and years and years, pretty much blaming the husband for any affairs that they have. There was a, I think it was a New York Magazine or New Yorker article where these women were accounting why they cheated. And they pretty much, the whole article was like, the guy's a loser. He's pathetic. You go, girl, for living out your dream. And so our society is generally thinking, sees female affairs as something caused by the husband being a loser or abusive or, you know, eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich a weird way, you know, whatever. Uh, You know, and the girl, you know, girls just got to live it up. They've got to have fun. There's not this social uh, taboo, as much of a social taboo around it as with um, male affairs. Male affairs, even though I don't think Politically, they're as bad as they once were. Um, you know, there's been there's been several. You know, there was a the Democrat who ran against Tom Tillis in 2020 was accused of an affair, and it likely didn't play a role in him losing because that state was won by Trump. Or this guy, you know, it was a very close election, and you would have otherwise thought like, oh, an affair, it's over for him. Um, you know, he's going to get crushed and he still had a very competitive race. Uh, Herschel Walker, (laughs) 
was not hurt by the love children. He was only hurt by the fact that he's paying for abortion. The fact that he was having an affairs and he had rampant behavior, that didn't matter to voters. It was the fact that he's paying for abortions. It was then it was taken to the next level that was that. Uh, so that's another example of it politically. So even with the men, it doesn't affect them. But for women, it especially doesn't affect them. Uh, they can either claim that they're victim, that like the man who convinced them to have an affair was... Um, exploited them you know they were human trafficked or something uh they they lost their sense of agency during this people believe this shit so they'll do it or they'll be like my husband's a loser and i just wanted to have fun both are uh acceptable things or they'll just just say it's a private matter and it's none of your business another acceptable matter and you can see the dramatic changes in how we view sex lives of our politicians by this woman running for state senate in virginia uh, this woman is doing porn <laughs> on the internet for money. <laughs> it's like, I think it's like all the sex actions are with her husband, but it's still, it's like, this would just be like, it's over. Like, you not only are not running for office, like, you're like going to need to change your name. Like, it's over for you. This woman instead is having the entire Democratic Party and mainstream media defend her as a victim of uh, revenge porn. <laughs> it's like my private images have been leaked it's like you were selling these clips on the internet for money <laughs> it's like but then they're like oh her private acts are being leaked it's like she's the one who leaked them like this is already out there and the fact that she hasn't dropped out and the and she's actually defending her actions and liberals are like go you go girl this is so brave of her you know it just shows like the the sexual um standards we have especially for our leading figures are just like completely different even from 10 years ago uh you know still even 10 years ago affairs hurt politicians um there i i keep bringing up these examples but there was a republican in louisiana david vitter he was a he was actually a solid congress senator he was very strong on our issues and he was running for governor against the current democratic governor uh I guess it would have been in 2015 or, you know, it was a while ago. And it was, it was, it was 2015. And he was, had solid record, but he just had this uh, scandal that he had been, his name had been found in a DC madam's black book. So he's using escorts. And like, how is this a shock to anyone that our lawmakers are banging prostitutes? But this is a huge deal. This is a scandal. And this was his major problem in the in the campaign. He barely won the primary. It looked like he and he lost the general election over this, over that problem. And this is just in 2015. And this is a deep red state. But they, you know, they revolted against him and they said no. And... You know, and he uh, he lost that election. But today, it's like it wouldn't even made new. <laughs> it might even it would have been like hardly a campaign issue that he was paying prostitutes. So like, oh well, maybe it is the Trump effect um, on our politics. Uh, probably, I don't know if it's a good thing, but it's it's something. And one more example before I go to Lauren Boebert is in 2014. There was a very competitive primary in Mississippi between Thad Cochran, establishment Republican, and Chris McDaniel, who was a Tea Party guy. And it looked like Chris McDaniel was going to win. And he knew that the key to victory was proving that Thad Cochran was having an affair with his secretary, which he, he was. But 
Uh, it was very hard to prove this. It's one thing is like it's very hard to prove affairs, even though they had information. Because I remember that uh, Chris McDaniel's campaign was shopping around a ton of reporters, and I was one of the reporters they were shopping this material out to. And they're like, we found that Thad Cochran's been living with his secretary. He hasn't visited his ailing wife. And Thad Cochran was very old at this time, and his wife was on death's door and he's basically ignoring her to focus on his secretary. And his secretary was like an older woman too. She was like 60. Uh, so it wasn't like it was like a young secretary, but it was likely that he was having an affair, but it's very hard to prove this, but they knew they were went to such desperate means to prove that they were having an affair. that like McDaniel's campaign broke into the nursing home where Cochran's wife was to show like this information. Cause they knew that this was going to be the key to victory. If they proved the affair, if they were able to use that in ads, that that would have killed him. And now today, like people wouldn't even go to that extent because they know that like voters are just going to shrug their shoulders and like, Oh, well, and continue on depending on the case but very different and it's just like with and this is not just a republic even though we're primarily focusing on republicans this goes doubly true for democrats because they now have all these a lot of their younger women are polyamorous or having nudes online Besides the state Senate candidate, who's now just showing the full effect of this, and we're going to have a lot more Democratic candidates like this because uh, of just like what liberal women are like. But there was a uh, Katie Hill who was briefly a congresswoman, and she was like seen as the millennial congresswoman. And this is back when millennials still meant young in the late 2010s. It hasn't meant ever since the 2020. It's not meant young anymore. But she was like, I'm a millennial congresswoman, and she won election in 2018 along with AOC. And it came out that she was having an affair with uh, one of her staffers. And she was also having affairs with lots of others because she was polyamorous. And there was nudes that are leaked online. And she was able to turn herself into a victim because she was like, these are revenge porn of my husband. And this is what it is. And of course, Democrats are like, you go girl, have your fun. But she had to resign because it was the, the after Me Too, Congress had made explicit rules that you are not allowed to have a relationship with your staff. And she was doing that. And there's some other improprieties in that. And so she had to resign. But the entire mainstream media thought she was a hero for having an affair and that there was nothing wrong with any of her actions, <laughs> despite and being polyamorous. So this is all across the field. But Republicans have their own specific uh, problems. So now we're coming to Boebert. Bobert uh, had one of the this is one of the funniest news stories of the year. And Bobert just had a had an incredible year for herself. Uh, first is that she became a grandma at 36 and proudly announced that she was a grandma, even though it was uh, not a planned it was not a planned pregnancy. It was her teenage son knocked up a 15 year old and uh, the he's not going to be you know, they're not marrying or anything. And probably unlikely he's going to be the one taking care of it but lauren bobert announced she's a gg and this is awesome and for some reason the right began defending this uh teenage uh un teenage pregnancies outside of marriage uh where the father is not even going to be around to take care of the kid um, for some reason this is epic uh because this is what more people should do i don't know why but people were going with it so people actively defended that that was another moral change because in 2008, I brought this up at the time, it's like Sarah Palin forced her daughter, who was almost 18, to 
be engaged to the father of her child to show that they were building up, you know, they're still for traditional family values and stuff. Of course, that engagement didn't last. But during the when she was running for vice president, it was seen as embarrassing and a huge mark against her, especially among conservatives, that she was had her child was having a teen pregnancy. Uh, Bobert showed that actually conservatives think teen pregnancy is now awesome because uh, all the criticism was coming from the left while conservatives were like defending it and like, at least they're having kids. This is the natalist future we want. And uh, I don't know. Those those arguments are once again coming up with Bobert's latest example. And then she got a divorce from her husband. Uh, uh, and her husband and her have had a very Jerry Springer life. Like they've been calls for domestic abuse coming to their home. And they've had funny legal issues throughout their time. And they don't really have any money either because very much living up to their white trash uh, persona. And soon after her divorce, it was found out that a few years ago, she had tried to seduce a married man uh, who's like a bar owner. And she was like going up to the bar and like, hey, I got some money for you. Like, leave your wife for me. And she was also married at this time. And um, obviously that was it. But then it's like all come down to her uh, attending a uh, performance of Beetlejuice the musical <laughs> in Denver, Colorado with a date. Well, she went to it. First reports is that she was just kicked out for vaping and being loud and obnoxious. I mean, she went to the uh, event and the whole time was like vaping and people told her to stop. And she's like, no. And then she was like clapping and singing and dancing along in her seat, which is just uh, really not what you're supposed to do with these things. Like, I hate that. But there's like a certain type of woman that especially white woman who was just like, woo, I'm, I'm in my seat dancing and singing. You know, this is not quite like a rock concert so much. Uh, you know, you can, if the rest of the crowd is swaying along to it, I guess you can go with it. But, uh, you know, her was maybe she, she was thinking she was at a Doobie Brothers show or something. But she got kicked out and it was like a minor thing and like, you know, it was whatever. And there was, but then the video clips got uh, emerged and the video clips made it even funnier because it appears that uh, Bobert in the crowd was giving her uh, man, who is a liberal bar owner who proudly hosts drag events, was giving him an over the pants hand job <laughs> and the guy was uh, groping her. Uh, while in a musical and you know uh, it's one thing for teenagers to do this like at the back of a movie theater by themselves but it's one thing to do it in a crowded auditorium where there's literally kids sitting behind her to do this and you're also a congresswoman it's like uh where's the behavior and then she got kicked out and she flicked off the security and she uh went on her merry way um, this issue is just really funny. I I don't know if there's something serious there, but it, it does show like Bobert herself as typifying a lot of the behavior of some of the leaders of or some of the Republican women who become leaders in the movement or, or gain congressional offices, their type of behavior. It's very much white trash. It's a kind of a masculine, assertive, feminine sexuality that they have. And they're proud of it, and they'll flick you off and cuss you out if you uh, come at them. And they'll vape and sing and dance and cause a commotion like a certain magical people if they're really enjoying a show. 
So it was a very inappropriate, uh, inappropriate behavior for uh, a 36 year old grandmother, but <laughs> it is what it is. Now, some we got more defenders of Bobert. Bobert always has her defenders. Um, most of them have been ironic defenses of Bobert. Of just like everyone thinks this is funny. It is really funny. I think it's very entertaining. I don't. Um, well, it's behavior unbecoming of a congresswoman, but it is. But there's been unironic defenses of her. It's like, oh, this is how we uh, encourage more babies to be born. It's like we need to encourage more lust in public public sex among figures. Uh, I've seen a few of those topics. Sounds like, uh, first off, these are not young lovers. <laughs> this is a 36-year-old grandma. And I think the guy's like 40. Uh, so uh, these are not young lovers. I think they're... Um, might be, well, she probably still has a few more years to have children, which um, maybe she will, but I don't know if she will, if she, uh, if that's what she wants, but uh, this is not quite young lovers, you know, uh, out. So I don't think this is really uh, encouraging people to give uh, hand jobs in public isn't really uh, how we increase the birth rate. I don't think, um, it's more about being mature and acting like adults. I think that's a bigger issue with this. And so it's just like a funny thing that this is now like a scenario. And it really does encourage the type of white trash nature of the Republican Party now and the insane clown party aspect in that there. And there was a lot of people, the bigger defenses of people coming to it is like these same people who attack this will defend drag queen story hour. And it's like, that's a legitimate point. But at the same time, it's. If this is your side, you're not really quite upholding traditional social values if your people, if your leaders act like horny teenagers in a movie theater during the Beetlejuice musical. So I don't know. I don't know uh, what that's, um, if that quite works out in the way that people think. But Bobert does represent a lot of the type of people that are now into this. And it's even her former friend and now enemy, Marjorie Taylor Greene, has had similar um events she's uh, she was had multiple affairs on her husband which daily mail had a whole funny article about the goofball she was having uh, affairs with there was like one who's like a like a guru of some sorts that she was having an affair with it was a very funny article which once again if that article had come out 10 years ago on a conservative politician it would have been over for them but the fact that it came out and it did zero damage no damage whatsoever on her, maybe a damage on her marriage, because eventually, I think just this year, they announced she's getting a divorce from her husband. This is like two years ago. This is like when she first entered Congress, when this article came out. And it's just like, these don't matter, especially for women. Uh, so she has similar stuff that's going on to Bobert, even though they both hate each other, probably because they're both very similar. And they, you know, there's only, Congress is only big enough for one of them like that. Uh, there's also been rumors swirling about her and McCarthy. Uh, so there's like, that's very similar to them. And so they all talk about like the social conservative agenda and this, and then they'll go and have a lifestyle is very incompatible with that. And another thing is like how many swingers are in Republican leadership circles. It's like, I know a lot of, of people who are powerful in the Republican Party who are uh, swingers. It's very, it's like an interesting thing. It's like, 
Democrats are polyamorous and then Republicans are swingers. That's the real that's the real party uh, partisan gap between the two. Uh, there's been a few. There was one woman, I think it was running in Arizona. She was about to challenge a more conservative lawmaker in a primary. And then she decided not to run. I think it was Arizona. And then it turned out she and her husband were swingers. That not a huge surprise there. I've heard it about all their Republican officials as well that this is uh something they're into. And it appears that probably MTG and maybe Lauren Boebert may have been doing similar behavior as that. It's funny that this is coming out at a time when also you see the rhetoric online is, you know, a total prudishness. You know, we're, we're pretending that no one's having sex. Everyone is, uh, or everyone's going to be waiting till marriage. And then in the marriage, like all sexual activity will be limited just to childbirth, to giving birth to children. That's all that it's going to be about, which it comes into direct conflict with what the Republican uh, women and Republican leadership roles are like. You know, you saw this with Nancy Mace, who's another, you know, very uh, has a lot of sexual energy for a Republican congresswoman. And she was gave a speech in a prayer breakfast where her she talked about how her husband tried to pull her into bed to obviously have sex with her before the prayer breakfast. She's like, oh, sorry, honey, I have to give a talk before breakfast to the a prayer breakfast we can't do this right now we'll do this later tonight and conservatives were just like outraged over that and were fear um criticized her a lot probably more so than even like bobert is getting criticized because one is like the inappropriate scenario to share such a story but it's also that a lot of the young women who are you know, involved in conservative media circles and, and political circles in D.C. have a very different attitude towards uh, these matters than women like Nancy Mason, Lauren Boebert, where they have like a hype, like women like that have a hypersex drive, while these women are really repulsed by male sexuality in general. And you can oftentimes see this, like you see these women who will just complain. Like I was seeing one of these prominent accounts complain about, I'm seeing a lot of married men who follow semi-pornographic accounts maybe that's like you know sharing swimsuit photos or something i don't know and they're like this is terrible i can't believe this and a lot of these women i've been around them is like they're like horrified by the thought that a guy would you know be attracted to tits and ass and they just they really want to just like eliminate that type of male sexuality and that's why a lot of these women end up with gay men as their husbands is because, you know, obviously closet cases aren't going to be driven by that male sexuality. They're not going to have to deal with that untamed um, drive that they do with gay men. And they can have their little uh, gay best friend that goes with them and likes all the same activities with them. And is they never have to worry about him um, checking out a chick in a, in a swimsuit. So they really like that uh, idea is that they want to neuter male sexuality in the men that they're around. Uh, they basically want like a Matthew McConaughey type who like never has no type of that type of hyper sex drive or the type of rat un, untamed testosterone that drives that. They think they can have that guy, but he is really excited about, you know, having a tea party or something, you know, that that's like what they think that they want their man is. It's a very kind of feminized man, but it comes with, you know, social conservatism attributes. So that's something that's not all conservative women, but that's a particular subset of women 
who are active online in our sphere and are very prominent within uh, conservative media circles and within conservative activism world in D.C. And of course, they're going to be repulsed by Nancy Mace, which likely she deserved criticism. That's not the time and place to be talking about how you're having sex, but whatever. That, but it's a you know disconnect between like what Republican lawmakers are like, and they're much more like they're closer to Lauren Boebert than you know prudish great aunt at 23 that's like a lot of these uh women who are working as staffers and and getting roles at like heritage foundation or whatever but few of those women are going to be getting elected because i I think a lot of people are turned off by that behavior and find it as shrewish you're going to be instead seeing more of these women like nancy mace bobert and mtg having these hilarious um uh, sex affair stories and it not affecting them and we're conservatives rallying around them to defend it and saying that these are our people we're you know they'll use some argument to say that the libtards are too lame to understand this or whatever but you're going to see more of those candidates emerging and it's a reflection of our society and what we encourage in in female behavior and now i mean we may have this traditional understanding that you're going to be monogamous you're not going to cheat you're just going to fall along with the husband but everything else is telling the girls to follow their heart and follow their their desires and uh that's likely to lead to more affairs there's even these accusations over nikki haley you know that she earlier in her career oh these weren't substantiated but they were allegations made that she was sleeping with a lot of guys in south carolina politics to rise up course these are not substantiated these are just uh, allegations but even with her she's trying to have that type of assertive female sexuality in her because in her campaign because one she's always talking about like if you want something done right you go to a woman and it's trying to unman all of her fellow candidates it's a type of conservative feminism there and she even had a clip of her doing well in debate and trying to unman these guys to the song man eater which uh, says a lot. But uh, there's even chances that all these women like to do that. They all like to have, like, put on their heels and their skirt and try to say that they're unmanning these old white guys they're running against. Uh, Joni Ernst, when she was first running for Congress, talked about how she knows how to uh, castrate pigs. Like, she did this, like, ah, I've been cutting nuts all, all my life. And it's like in a pig squealing. And it was sounding that she was going to do that in Washington with all these male politicians. Last year in 2022, there was Jane Timken, who was running in the Ohio uh, Senate primary, and her she did this whole ad where she had the worst personality. She like had zero charisma. If there's like a negative charisma, like they would see a picture of her. And she did this whole ad where she talked in robotic voice about how these men just don't get it, and you need a woman to do this. And it was about like I'm unmanning these 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 man babies that I'm running against. And this is what we really need in the Republican Party. So it does represent a kind of conservative feminism that you see emerging within the party leadership. And even though it's not quite reflected on Twitter, which Twitter has its own, or X as it's now called, has its own uh, prioritization. But you are seeing this come to place, come to the fore in Republican politics. And it has uh, weird results. So that's one thing to look into it is that conservative feminism, I think, and why no one really wants to condemn this behavior because girls can now have as much fun as they want and 
you know, Democrats are even more uh, defensive of behavior. Like you couldn't get away with what that state Senate candidate in Virginia is doing on the Republican Party. You would have to drop out no matter who you are. It's only within the Democrats that that's tolerated and defended as awesome behavior, which is just a jo- such a joke that that would even be the case. But this says a lot about America and how it is. I mean, all that type of activity is becoming more and more common and probably people who are into that activity are more likely to run for office maybe than normal people because they already like that attention and voyeurism. So they'll now get into that and the risk taking behavior. Uh, so that's uh, that'll be something interesting. You're down the line. You're going to see all you're going to see openly polyamorous women running for office. I think I forget if Katie Hill was openly polyamorous. I, she may have been, but even um, cinema always indicates like she's bisexual and doesn't have a like a normal sex life. It, so and that's used to. I mean, Democrats hate her for other reasons, but you're going to see a lot more of that. So it is like becoming a weirder society with this and women adopting all these uh, weird sexual orientations and behavior and. <laughs> in modern America, and that's now reflected in our politics. So that's one thing to consider here with the Bobert story and the Gnome story. The other thing is, it is like an ex- expression of the insane clown party, is that we are encouraging a type of revolt against traditional WASP norms of behavior because we view that as like the traditional establishment, country club types. And in some ways that's good because the the traditional country club types were, you know, too favorable of immigration. They were too favorable of working with Democrats to pass terrible legislation and being too obsessed with civility and decency. But it comes with major downsides. And the major downsides is you have people like Lauren Boebert as now your leaders. And their behavior is completely obnoxious and outrageous to traditional lost norms. Like you... Even for kids, it would be looked down upon for doing this behavior. But if you're an adult, especially a grandmother, you should not be doing over-the-pants hand jobs at the Beetlejuice musical. <laughs> and, and they're, uh, but they just, uh, that's what's a part of the insane clown party mindset is that we're just overthrowing any type of norms and standards. And we're allowing these types of, and we're now celebrating lower uh, downscale white dysfunction uh, to an incredible extent. And this goes along anytime you see like a woman in the trailer park with like four, you know, that I've talked about where there's like the clips of the woman in the trailer park taking care of four kids, no father around. And people are like, this is awesome. And even with Lauren Boebert's, uh, you know, teen, pre- her kid having a teen pregnancy and him not deciding not to marry that girl and probably not taking care of the kid, that scene is awesome. So it's a little bit too much people really view a lot of the old wasp norms as libtardism now and that the you know in this like caddyshack mindset that they're rebelling against the country club but when that rebellion comes you're not really quite getting people focusing on the identity issues or taking them seriously you're instead just finding people defending uh bobert's antics and (laughs) in general white trash behavior which is upsetting or is very unappealing to middle-class whites, and then they are less inclined to vote Republican. So that's just something to see there with conservative girls gone wild and and what's happening there. A little bit of a, a lot of things to discuss in that topic, but it's, it 
the one final point I want to make is you're going to see so many hilarious uh, sex scandals coming from politicians that wouldn't have even been imaginable for politicians in a previous era, you know, even in the 2000s and 2010s. But they're going to become so common and really all they are are just uh, jokes, but they don't really upset these politicians' chances of being reelected. Now on to the common lead questions. We are going to have a final topic, which I'm going to address the changing Greer Head Pledge. And maybe if it changes back, we'll do that as a final topic for today. But we're going to get out of the common lead question. We only have one today, so that's fine. We'll have many more next week, I bet. But today we are, as a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the common lead option at highly respected Substack. And that's at highly respected.substack.com. Dot com and make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there. I'm gonna have to change that slogan with uh, I change it to highlyrespected.com because it's apparently a lot easier to share this stuff on uh, Twitter with that if you don't have Substack in your handle because of course any Substack mention gets throttled on Twitter. So I'm gonna have to change my whole slogan that I've been doing for years. But in any case, we'll go to the one question that comes from Dave and Dave asks Scott, what do you make of Trump? saying that the heartbeat bills are bad. Is this bad politically? And what about the backlash to this? And this is an interesting question because Trump went on with the NBC interview and he's like, oh yeah, the heartbeat bills are bad. You know, he was uh, critical of these bills that they went too far. And he's like, we're going to bring Republicans and Democrats together to have a, a common solution on abortion, which is unlikely to happen. So I will say this, like, it's not smart for Trump to do this in a Republican primary of what he said about abortion. Uh, but he does have a point that the heartbeat bills are not as politically popular as they think. And it, the main problem with Republicans is proposing a nationwide ban. But even the heartbeat bills itself, like having a governor associated with that with like Ron DeSantis and what DeSantis campaign is now you know, DeSantis's campaign has been wavering on abortion because, and the pro-life groups have criticized DeSantis for not coming out openly in favor of a nationwide, you know, abortion restriction. He's just like, well, in Florida, we passed a heartbeat bill and we'll let the voters decide on nationwide because he knows that a nationwide abortion restriction pulls horribly on the public. Even even though technically a 15 week when they, you know, you suggest a 15 week ban, you know, the fact is that it just comes out as ban and they don't and it's like nationwide and it's likely it's just an issue that they need to push aside for uh, other issues because it obviously hurt Republicans in 2020 and 2022, which all these idiots still say like, oh, no, it didn't look, uh, you know, they had pro-life candidates who won in various states. It's like, look. You know, if it's such a politically popular issue, they should be able to pass abortion restrictions at the ballot box in red states. But guess what? They keep failing at every in every state they do this in Kentucky, Kansas, Montana. And it's going to be happening in Ohio soon, too, as well. So it's obviously not even winning in, in fairly red states. Um, but uh, people persist in, in saying that it's actually a huge election winner. But going on Trump's topics, I don't think it was the smartest thing to do to say it's a terrible mistake. And it's not even the proper wording for this. The real th issue is just to say we're going to be focusing on other things because it's clearly a political killer for Republicans. It's not a political winner. But 
and even DeSantis's campaign is running afoul of the pro-life move by not having an explicit endorsement of a nationwide abortion restriction, which they're now wanting like 15 weeks rather than a full ban. Um, <laughs> because even they know that a full ban is extremely unpopular, but even the 15 week ban wouldn't it, like making it a nationwide issue would hurt Republicans because you can just look at the 2022 midterms. Republicans look to be cruising to victory in the real and the midterms until Roe v. Wade was overturned. And then it became a nationwide issue and gave Democrats ammunition and Republicans didn't know how to work with the issue, where they were going to go with the issue. And it really did contribute significantly to Republican defeats, even with people saying election denial stuff. Like if you look at Pennsylvania with Doug Mastriano, like he was campaigning hard on an abortion ban, which probably had at least as much of an effect or if more of an effect for his, you know, massive loss than, you know, calling out, you know, questioning the 2020 election. Because that was like a huge issue for them. And in Michigan, they campaigned heavily on it and they were trounced and they weren't really getting into the questioning election stuff that much, at least at the top of the state level. They were crushed in there. So it's to go and none of these referendums on putting abortion restrictions succeeded in red states. So like, how is it working? The one thing is that's going to happen here is that Trump is, you know, even though he's running afoul of the pro-life movement, he's going to show that they're a paper tiger, that they actually don't have this political clout that they think they do. Is that the pro-life movement is a very much a DC-centric group, or at least as when that's their main issue. With the grassroots, the grassroots is pretty much all pro-life. None of them are really pro-choice. Now, a lot of Republican voters, surprisingly, are pro i don't want to say pro-choice but pro-abortion just because people ordinary people have political views all over the place and it's not quite there but among the like hard grassroots activists you know majority of them if they if you ask them are you pro or anti-abortion they would say i am anti-abortion i am pro-life but ranking that in a hierarchy of what issues they care about they care a lot more about crime immigration the economy taxes gun rights a whole lot more other stuff than abortion. It's one of the issues that they, you know, they are pro-life, but it's not one of the most important issues to them. Now, if you listen to conservative media, it's their number one important issue, more so than anything else. Like education doesn't matter. It's more about abortion. But that's because that's reflecting what they care about. The people at National Review, the people at Heritage Foundation, I shouldn't be criticizing the Heritage Foundation so much in this podcast because they've gotten a lot of improvement, but people working in other nonprofits, uh, leadership institutes where I started out, you know, places like that, you know, they think that this is, they view it as the most important issue and then they read it into the base as it, the most important issue, but it's not there. And also another problem with the pro-life mood is that they're not loyal to people. They've been criticizing Trump throughout ever since 2021 and attacking him and they were never that supportive of him even though he was one of the first presidents to i think he was the first sitting president to ever speak before a march for life and he was the guy responsible for getting rid of roe v wade by his judicial appointments but you know they don't give a shit about that they have zero loyalty to people because one i always bring up these examples they threw the covington catholic kids under the bus immediately before all the facts were known when that story broke in early 2019. They did not defend Steve King at all, despite Steve King being the most pro-life congressman in, in Washington. 
they didn't defend him at all because he was a racist. They don't defend people. They are the most, you know, utilitarian people when it comes to to figures and individuals. They'll throw anyone under the bus. They threw that woman, you know, a pro-life group fired some woman just for giving a basic statement of Christian faith a month ago that a Jewish congressman complained about. You know, they have, they're not loyal people. They are not. They, any type of controversy, they'll throw you to the wolves. But, you know, they insist that you have to care about their issue to the detriment of your own ability to maintain political power. And that's really what they're demanding from Republicans because they continue to lose at the ballot box. All of their notions about how popular abortion or pro-life is have been turned out to be lies. And I've been in conservative politics for 10 years, you know, formally. And I remember in the, in the 2010s, they kept insisting that millennials are the pro-life generation. It turned out that they are the pro-choice generation, but, and serious columnists kept arguing like, oh yeah, they're buying this because pro-life movement was filling them with bullshit. They claimed that women are more pro-life than men. That's not true. They're more pro-choice. They've claimed, they even will sometimes claim because of how they distort polling and stuff, they'll even claim that a majority of Americans support a ban on uh, abortion pills. Actually, it's the opposite. And so, but they rely on this thing. And by allowing Republicans, they don't really reward Republicans for doing what they want because they don't provide the type of votes are it's not like they activate like people on the sidelines of whether to vote they don't activate that mass constituency like the issue does on the other side because there's all these apolitical people apathetic people who will turn out the ballot box if they think that their their birth control is going to get banned there's a lot of people like that there's not these type of people like oh republicans finally overturned roe v wade now i'm going to vote for them they didn't turn out voters at all they don't provide money they don't. They really just ensure that Republicans can't accomplish anything uh, because they have to focus on their one issue that isn't even pop, that popular among or that important to Republican voters. And it's more about elite capture than it is about reflecting what the grassroots mood is. The grassroots is pro-life, but they are concerned about other things more than they are about abortion. And Trump is beginning to reflect that. And I think Trump's poll numbers are not going to be hurt by these comments. He is not going to be hurt in the primary at all. And even DeSantis really can't pick up on it because the pro-life movement isn't, it doesn't feel that he's pure enough. So it's just going to show them making big hay about this. It's just going to show that Republicans can safely ignore them, which is going to diminish their political power over time, which is probably not a smart move for the pro-lifers. But this is just going to be facts. I mean, the Ohio referendum on abortion that's going to be on the November ballot is going to be a pro-abortion victory. And they'll probably even get the 60 percent of it of the vote. And it's just going to look embarrassing for uh, abort uh, for pro-lifers. And this is going to continue on and they're going to continue to lose the argument that this is what the masses care about. So some are accept this and some who accept this complain about Trump's electability problems. At the same time that they'll say Trump is unelectable, they'll be insisting, well, who gives a shit about electability and winning politics? We have to do this uh, no matter what, because this is what's important. And it's like, well, how are you motivating people if you're promising massive defeat, but you have to do this anyway? And I just see like people like, oh, this is a weak man position. This is weak or this position. It's like, look, if you're essentially embracing an issue that even your own voters aren't really 
that are fairly apathetic towards and it ensures that you're going to lose political power like and which is also going to mean that you're not going to even be able to affect this issue as much as you like like it's it's politically stupid but people just embrace that radical rhetoric because they know that they lose the uh the electoral matter so they just say like who cares about this we're going to do this anyway, which then just jeopardizes any other issues that you'll care about. And you're just ensuring permanent democratic power. And it just becomes a way to own people online. And then you're politically powerless. And then Democrats can easily overturn your abortion restrictions. And what did you accomplish? You accomplished nothing. So it's a it's a real political stupidity in addressing this issue. And that said, it's not like Republicans should go pro-choice because those voters are never going to vote Republican. And a lot of the pro-lifers, you know, the grassroots is still relatively pro-life. So you do have to figure out ways. To, so your Republicans are always going to push for ways to restrict abortion, whether that's defunding Planned Parenthood or making it harder for Planned Parenthood to set up in various areas and other things. And even just leaving it to states to a state's issue of how they're going to see abortion is probably the best compromise you can do. So that is like the case. It's not like an argument for Republicans becoming pro-choice. It's just more of an argument that Republicans have to be much smarter and much more tactful about this issue going forward. And, and they need to avoid making this a national issue in 2024. Just saying like, we're leaving it to the states. That's it. It really negates some of the power it's going to have in the 2024 election. The dumbest thing they could do is like we're mandating a nationwide ban, which is going to which is just a gift for Democrats. You just have to be smart about this issue and how you address it, because there are so many important things right now. And stressing this issue above all is going to ensure that we have no ability to address those issues about demographic change, about public law and about law and order, about foreign policy on a host of all other issues. If you sacrifice that all on behalf of one, not only will you not accomplish anything on those issues, but you'll ensure that the Democrats can easily overturn all your progress and advancement on that one issue that you care about. So that's my opinion on that subject. I've talked about this a lot. It's not very popular with some of the audience, but I'm going to say it anyway. Now for a final note is the controversy over, lots of controversy today, is the controversy over the Greerhead Pledge. Is that we, I announced a change to the Greerhead Pledge saying that uh, I will not watch the NFL will now be turned to I will not watch the NBA. And I went over some of the reasons for this in my podcast or IQ supplement last week, which is why you should subscribe. But I think I may... This is showing some indecision on my part, but actually there was a really good comment from one of uh, the people who was listening to the IQ supplement. And they said that, you know, and, and part of the argument that I was making is that the Greerhead pledge becomes by saying we're no weed, no NBA, no rap, no Marvel, is that it becomes a saying that we're going to oppose black culture and or we're going to reject black culture and we're going to reject Reddit culture. But actually, the point person made is like, well, all the four previous tenets represented a different aspect about American culture. And the NBA pledge is redundant because you're already saying I'm rejecting rap music. And most of the people who are not listening to rap music are going to also not listen to or not watch the NBA because it's like black culture. So it's redundancy. You already have the black culture tenet there with rap. So it makes more sense to return the NFL to that to that take. 
And so I am more open to that idea. So most likely we're gonna have it revert back to the original form. I'm gonna explain why in an article later this week, but I think to just go over brief is that the four tenets represent a different aspect, negative aspect about America. Weed represents vice and drug culture, and it's not just like drugs, it also represents uh, pornography, gambling, uh, you know, poor eating habits. It's like a drug and vice culture is that people can't control their habits and they just want to be slugs. That's why you're rejecting weed. Rap, rejecting black culture. (laughs) Nothing else need to be added, but we'll add some stuff into the article to address the NBA question. And then Marvel movies. It's a rejection of Reddit culture. And you know that would also include Star Wars and just like all the type of goofy fandoms that are now emerging around various um, superhero movies or whatever. And so those are rejection. Now the NFL, when you have that, NFL is a combination of all three. But it represents, it's the ultimate form of American culture. If you want to ask one if you were limited to one expression of what is American culture, it would be the NFL. Now, there's some good aspects about it. Like, I actually love the game. I love Football is my favorite sport to watch. I loved watching football as a kid. I still like watching football now. I prefer watching college football because it's a more erratic game. There's much more unpredictability. There's a better culture and atmosphere around it. But I still like the, the NFL. There's a much better skill involved. Uh, so it's still an entertaining sport to watch. But it's more about the culture around it. And it's very much this like ugly American culture that's a combination of all three. And it has Americans in this giant bread and circuses spectacle where they're not able, they're able to avoid important issues and just focus on the spectacle, the bread and circuses rather than what's in front of them. And it's not a, I don't want to say that this is a rejection of sports culture because a lot of people interpreted that. And that's one reason that I wanted to go to NBA because we're not, I'm not telling you not to watch any sports. I'm just telling you not to watch specific sports, primarily the NFL and the NBA, also MLS, but I don't think anyone has to worry about MLS or really the NBA. It's primarily NFL, and it's more about stressing an ideal rather than ensuring that everyone follows it. Because I know a lot of people who are big career heads who like rap music, um, and I know a lot of big career heads who are big into the NFL. It's more about an ideal, about what should be strived for, and about how we can make American culture better, and about acknowledging what's wrong with American culture rather than being like an autistic, um, like, of course, we're very loyal to this. Like, it's very hard to uh, not listen to rap music because it's so ubiquitous in our society. And it's very hard to avoid noticing the NFL because, you know, it's uh, it's just such a common male culture for uh, adult male. So you have those issues, but it's, it's about stressing an ideal. So we're most likely, due to the fact that they each represent four different things and the NFL is the culmination of the other three and also representative of this type of ugly American bread and circuses culture, a spectacle culture uh, that's very much around America, which is different from sports culture. Uh, It's not a a rejection of sports culture. Uh, Sports is like great. I think I like sports. I think the main problem is with sports is that they're using this to propagandize and 
insert insidious ideas in the heads of Americans. So that's my main issue for this. So we'll explain this in an article later this week. I had another great article I was thinking about writing this week, but we'll save that for another time. It's not time sensitive. I can't reveal any details about it. But that's it for today's Highly Respected. We're going to have a great IQ supplement later this week and a fantastic article as well. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected. <laughs> <laughs>